Hey there, welcome to Board Game Hot Takes, the podcast where we give our immediate reactions to the hottest board games just minutes after playing them. My name's Tim. And this is Chris. This is Adam. And this is Steve. And today we're going to give our hot take on the game we just finished playing, Robotech Reconstruction. But before we do, I have a survey. The poll I, I posted was about where you purchase board games. Because I used to purchase most of my games through Amazon uh, just because I've got Amazon Prime. It was free shipping. But I was starting to get more and more challenging to actually know whether I was getting a real game. Like It's like you'd see cheap games on there, and I'm like, is that a is that just like a, a you know ripoff? Somebody somebody you know printed a, a fake copy of it or something like that. And I didn't want a fake copy of games. So I've been kind of hesitant to buy there. So where do you guys buy your games typically? I, I would love to go to a local game store. I mean, I believe in brick and mortar and you know having a, a store nearby that people know what you like and can and can get it for you. Unfortunately, these days, you know, and especially having moved and not really knowing the area too well yet, I still buy a lot of stuff off of um, off of Amazon. I am a mix. So I was option E, all of the above, with a lot of my games coming from Kickstarter or someone coming from the local game store. I, like, I just like to go to a board game store and I get that comfort feeling looking around at all the boxes and different games and being able to check them out and be like, oh, I've heard of this one. Let me check it out. Take a little look at it. And if something strikes my fancy, I'll pick it up there. Or I might, you know, have something in mind. I don't feel like waiting for Amazon to send me a fake game, so I'll just go to a local game store and buy the real thing. And then what were the other options? So the Amazon, Kickstarter, local game store. Tar- Target or Walmart, because there's a lot of hobby games in oh, yeah. those stores now. And then Amazon and then other other online stores. So yeah, occasionally, every one of those. I'm, occasionally, I will still do Amazon as well. You're an, you're an omni-buyer. Omni-buyer, for sure. What about you, Steve? I think the only game I bought recently was Aquatica which I did buy on Amazon. When I used to go to events at board game stores, which we used to do fairly regularly, it wasn't uncommon for me to pick up games there instead. Um, And that would have been my preference, but I haven't been going to any game store events recently. Yeah, I I used to just mostly buy on Amazon because it was easy, it's convenient, but it was like a combination of, you know, worrying that I'm getting something that's fake, but also you don't know who's selling it. So, you know, like, because people can do their Amazon stores there. And so sometimes I'd buy, I'd look at a game there and be way overpriced or it'd be way underpriced. And then I'm just like, I don't know if I'm actually getting this game or am I paying somebody for their used copy I don't know. It just feel it's starting to feel a little less like you're just buying a new game directly from the source. Have you ever bought secondhand, like from Board Game Geek Marketplace, for something older, harder to find, or something out of print? I should do that. You know, I've sold a bunch of games through the Board Game Geek Marketplace, so it's it makes a lot of sense to just look there, and I just never even think about it. So that's a good idea. I've actually started buying though primarily from game nerds. I don't remember why. I, felt, I think someone posted a, a special on their site, so I signed up, and now that I've got an account there. I don't mind buying from the same store. And if you spend like over 70 bucks, then you get free shipping. So it feels a little bit better. Like I'll, I'll see specials at other stores and I don't want to go and sign up for another account. So I just ignore that. <laughs> so I, I pretty much just go to Game Nerds and they do a pretty, they have a pretty good uh, job of keeping stuff in stock. And then things that they don't have in stock, they have like expected delivery, you know, like dates that they're coming in and you can pre-order new games. Like you can pre-order the Dune expansion and pre-order the Arnak expansion. So I just know that I know I'll be getting an actual copy of it instead of putting my money out on Amazon and maybe getting mm-hmm. something some someday in the future. People that responded on Twitter, uh, so 48% said they buy from the local game store. So lots of lots of people going to their local game stores. That, I've actually got a couple of look good game stores around me now, so I'm going to be keeping an eye out if there's a game I'm looking for. I'll try to pick them up there. Only 1% said Target or Walmart, but it, you know it's funny. When I walk in there and I can't help going down the game aisle, and there's a lot of pretty solid games in Target these days. 
Amazon is only 10%. That was shocking to me. And then 41% said other online store. I think I think uh, most of the people that didn't answer Amazon were lying. <laughs> I think you're right. But I just want to see, like, most of the, you know, there are a lot of people responded um, on the thread as well and just talked about the local game stores they love or the online stores that they love. It's good to see. There's if you If you're interested in finding some good online retailers, go check out that thread. Let's move on to a description of Robotech. Reconstruction. Robotech Reconstruction is an area control game designed for play by four humans or three humans in a player controlled bot. Each player takes on the role of an asymmetrical faction seeking to influence the future of Earth in the aftermath of the Zentradi War that nearly destroyed humanity in season one of the iconic anime series. The winner will be the first player to meet their faction specific goals which range from area control to pacifying the public to sparking rebellion. The game plays out on a large map representing the cities, zones, and other areas of North America following the Zentradi War. Each space has unique characteristics including a contentment track that indicates how happy the local populace is. Players will move around the board seeking to control areas by having the most units in a zone, seizing the protoculture that serves as the game's currency, and influencing the locals as they attempt to meet their specific goals. The game takes place over a minimum of two, but up to four rounds, with each round consisting of one turn per player. During the course of a turn, each player will take four steps. First, the player will have the opportunity to trade action cards, called event cards, with another player. Note that while each player has unique goals, some faction's interests may be aligned, at least temporarily, and plotting together is highly encouraged. Second, the player will play an event card, each event card has an assigned faction, which changes how the card effects are managed. The assigned faction undertakes the card's actions regardless of who actually played the card. In this way, the active player has the opportunity to influence what the other players do. In addition, there's a second action that the card owner's faction can take if the card was played by someone of a different faction. After the primary and potentially the secondary actions have been taken, the card will also determine which of the players who hasn't taken a turn yet goes next. Third, the active player will go through the take command phase. This allows the active player to take one standard action if they played an event card of their own faction, or two standard and or special actions if they played an event card of another faction. Each faction has a unique set of actions, however they generally fall into a few categories. Move units around the board, influence the populace, recruit new units, generate income, and attack. Finally, after taking one or two actions, the player will draw a new event card, and the active role will move to the next player. After each player has completed their turn, the game enters the resolution phase, which includes a number of steps, including opportunities for players to take a few last defined actions. At the end of the resolution phase, players will check to see if they've met their victory conditions, and if they have, the game ends with the successful player as the victor. If multiple players have met their victory conditions, the player who met their victory conditions earliest will be the winner. Robotech Reconstruction was created by the design team of Aaron Hunsowitz and Austin Smokovitz, also known collectively as Dr. Vitz, and art by Francisco Echart, and it's published by Strange Machine Games. All right, thanks Chris for that description. So let's uh, jump in and, and talk about the gameplay and mechanisms here. But Chris, first, you're the one that you know, kind of introduced this game to the group. You brought it in. Uh, why don't you tell a little bit about why you, you know, why you picked this game and, um, you know, and, and kind of the experience we had tonight. This is a game based on an IP that I have loved since I was back in high school. 
I mean, this is an iconic anime show that this game is based on. For those who haven't seen Robotech, it was it came out in the mid '80s, and it was known at the time for being a particularly um, sophisticated show, especially because it was you know, is a family a family weight show, so to speak. And yet it had a continuing story, which is pretty unusual at the time when you know, generally kids were watching Looney Tunes and, and that sort of thing. It was almost like watching a space soap opera. And I think a lot of kids at the time really loved that. The show has a huge fan base and, and I'm one of them. I had said on uh, Twitter that I was interested in the game because somebody had mentioned it in a tweet about Gen Con. And so out of the blue, the designers contacted us and said, hey, would you guys be interested in doing, uh, doing an online teach and play? And I was very interested in playing the game, said yes. And so we were very pleased to have Austin join us tonight for the game, explained it to us very thoroughly, sat with us through a couple of games and helped us understand the game better. And so it was uh, it was a pretty neat experience actually getting to walk through the game with the designer. Yeah, yeah, that was great. Um, it was really nice for one of, like, we didn't have to go through the process of learning and stumbling through teaching it and stumbling through looking through the rule book and, and rules. It was great. We had a we had an assistant there to just answer any question we had anytime. So it was super nice of them to do that. So my experience with Robotech was kind of similar to Chris's, but I don't remember it as well as he did. I was pretty young, probably like eight or nine, when I would turn on the UHF channel, channel 50, and every once in a while you'd run across the Robotech cartoon. And um, yeah, it, it did feel a little bit like a soap opera, and I loved that as a kid. I, I remember some early feelings of like, oh, butterflies, and that's what falling in love feels like. Like there was that like emotional attachment to these anime characters, and they just like, you know, combat vehicles but they also just had some some heart and some charm in into it so it's a series that i've always had a little bit of affection for but don't know too much more than that so well let's jump into the gameplay and mechanisms as i mentioned um adam what uh, what particularly stood out to you what's the first mechanism you want to chat about tonight i want to talk about the player interaction here because this is the game that brings that to the forefront and i absolutely Loved it. So Chris talked about it in the rule description. One of the first things a player can do on their action is try to trade a card. You try to wheel and deal. Say, hey, I can give you this card. Can you play this on your turn? It'll benefit me. And then you'll get the double bonus action if you play it for me. So that whole negotiation aspect there was fantastic. So that's one of the player interaction things. And then I'm going to bring in another piece where you want to try to topple the guy that's in the lead. So there's this shifting alliances. So each faction has like a frenemy faction where you're trying to, you're kind of paired with them. It's like a coin game, counterinsurgency. So you're kind of paired with another player at the table, somewhat working together. But at some point, you're going to have to abandon that and try to trash them and take the lead for yourself. In one point in one of these games, even Tim and I, as alliances that weren't paired together, were trying to work together to bring down the other two guys at the table. So just... The player interaction, the shifting alliances, I absolutely loved it. That was at the forefront for me. What about you, Chris? What stood out for you? Or you guys have any reactions to this player interaction piece? Yeah, I mean, that was one of the things that I wanted to talk about too, Adam. I think it is, it is a tremendously impactful thing. And the second, which is somewhat, I, I'm not sure I'd say it's related to it, but the second thing that I wanted to mention was the ability to influence what other people do and regardless of whether they're your friends or your frenemies or your you know, straight up enemies that when you play your card you're not necessarily playing a card for an action that you're going to take 
you're forcing somebody else to take an action. At least to me, I thought that was a pretty unique mechanism. I'd never seen anything quite like that before. Yeah, that is really interesting piece of it was that you have to really be careful about what you're playing because the the mechanism that really occurs there is that you can play a card that is for your faction where you get to make the choices of it. But if you do that, you give up some of the other actions you get to take. So the game motivates you to play a card that a different faction gets the benefit from. And it helps a little bit that you are generally trying to work with one of the other two factions because, for example, um, the, the control over areas is paired between the two and both factions care about control. So that's what we're talking about with frenemies. It kind of helps to, to you know benefit that one other person to a certain extent. So a lot of the time you're trying to negotiate with them and say like, hey, give me a card that you would want me to play for you. It'll help you, but it might also help me and it'll stop them from doing something. So there's a lot of layers into that. The mechanism that I thought was really interesting that kind of tied into all that was that when you play one of these cards, it shows the turn order priority listed on the right-hand side. So every round, the first player is dictated by, you know, it's predetermined. It changes once per round. So the first round, the, I don't know what, you know, I'm not going to get the terms of these factions right at all. I couldn't even say them during the game while I was reading off the thing. Like, if you don't know the flavor here, it's going to be all confusing anyway. But the big military power, right? They start the first round. But whatever card they play is going to dictate who plays the second card or basically who takes the next turn in that round. So the card will show what the priority is for that card. And then the second player will then dictate who the third and fourth player are going to be because it's going to show the, the priorities for the remaining uh, actors in the round. And I thought that was really cool. It just added another decision. It wasn't just like, is this you know, action going to benefit me or my partner? What, what kind of risk am I taking there? But also, do I want my partner to go next? Do I care who goes next? Do I... Being the last person in the round could be hugely impactful because you could just like load up and take control of a bunch of things and no one could do anything before the check for scoring. So anyway, I just thought that was one more thing that added a layer, an important decision into which event card you took. Steve, what about you? Anything that, that particularly stood out? Well, I'll just make a few comments on some things you did mention. Uh, specifically, the turn order management is actually super important. That player going last has the best option by far of winning the winning condition check. The alliance stuff was is super interesting because really what you use to take all of your actions in this game is your income or credits. They're called a proto protoculture. protoculture, right? The main way that you gain the income is with an income action, which you can take as an intentional action, but it also happens automatically at the end of each round. And you pair up with your soft alliance to control territories and that is specifically where that income is generated from so the more territories you and your soft alliance control the more income you're going to receive and that's what allows you to take all the other actions in the game it's really interesting how those various components not only work together but work against each other on purpose yeah i thought i agree completely and i want to emphasize something steve called it soft alliances i think that's really important to to point out because they really are soft (laughs) uh adam and i were were partners quote unquote through both games and in the second game i had set myself up so that I, i basically had met my win condition and the whole time we'd been you know backing each other 
you know, giving each other the cards to get to the, as close to the wind conditions as we possibly could. And then as soon as I got to that wind condition, all of a sudden, you know, Adam's talking to Tim and uh, and Steve, going, "Okay, how can we stop Chris from getting there?" So it is, it is, it's a, it's cutthroat in that sense. They, um, the designers made a point of saying that this is not intended to be a backstabby kind of game, but you really are focusing on what's best for you. And even if it's better for you to have your team, so to speak, ahead, it's not best for you to have your teammate win because you still want to win. So I thought that was that uh, boy that that put some it created some really interesting situations. So all those things we've been talking about is like, you know, negotiating for a card at the beginning of your turn and then deciding which card you're going to play. You know, there was a lot of downtime there. Did that guy did that? impact you guys like how did you feel about it with this game was it was it something that you really like were frustrated by or was it just you were so uh attentive to what was about to happen you didn't care i thought it was great so if steve was taking his turn and chit-chatting with tim then chris and i were over here like hey what do you think of this card what do you think of this card you know could we work this deal or this deal so while you guys were doing your thing over there it was uh the whole thing was scheming like okay man, who's in the lead right now? How am I going to take them down? What cards can we deal with to make sure Steve doesn't win this round? And so there was plenty to talk about when it wasn't my turn. Chris, I'm guessing you feel similar to me on this one. I'll go one step further and say that this is such an, the table talk is such an intrinsic part of this game that it goes well beyond that trading of cards. I mean, honestly, if you listened into this game, you'd have thought we were playing a co-op with the amount of talking that was going on and people plotting you know, openly against each other. And <laughs> hey, if we do this, we can stop Chris from winning or Steve from winning or what have you. It's just, it's it's so intense, the degree to which you're talking about this. So even if you didn't have to, I feel like the game is so conducive. And that was something that Austin said was intentional. They wanted to create a game where there was a lot of discussion happening around the table. And I mean, it succeeded. Steve, you had the lead there for a while. What, what's your take on that? First of all, my take on the whole discussion around the card trading. I didn't find it annoying that it was going on in terms of like wait time. I found it annoying that it was going on because it forces everyone to discuss at least some points of their strategy and makes them talk it through with their teammate, which isn't always to my benefit, right? Um, A lot of games, even if table talk is allowed, there aren't specific triggers in the game that force the players to talk to each other about their strategy. And this card trading action forces you to do that i think what steve's saying is that he's the most clever of us all and we when we all work together then we might we might have a chance against him that's what he doesn't like about it yeah and he did win the first game too just to say i didn't say i didn't like it it's just different most games don't have that trigger each each player's turn there's a trigger that forces them to think and discuss their strategy with at least one other player so i don't know i want to disagree a little bit everybody knows each other's strategy it's laid out each person's win condition is right out there for everybody else to see it's tracked there's a tracker that says okay steve needs to hold five cities uh chris needs to hold seven territories i need to recruit 11 dudes it's right there for everyone to see so everyone knows a strategy and can look around and it's even beneficial to point out like oh Tim's going to win if we don't stop him. So what card can I give you? So the strategy is how can I stop this other guy and then maybe be hush-hush about what my intentions are when it comes around to my turn. So that was kind of how I looked at it. 
I understand what you're saying, but there is the component of you have to, if you're going to trade, you're revealing information about your hand to somebody else and they are doing the same. And generally there's going to be some discussion there that gives you some hints as to what they're planning to do aside from just stop Steve from winning. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree with that. Yeah. Moving on to other mechanisms. Was there anything else that you guys wanted to mention? I want to talk about the end of round Steve alluded to. So after each player gets to play one card, it moves to this whole end of round phase that has some more actions that you get to do. First, you check, well, did anybody win? Nope. Okay. Well, we get to do this thing. This faction gets to do a free recruit. This faction gets to do a free influence. Now we get to do this. And now you get to do this. Now you get to do, everybody gets to do their income, collect money. So that whole end of round kind of check for this and do a couple free actions and kind of a reset, but also gain some things. I thought that was pretty neat too. Yeah, one of the things you mentioned there was how like two of the factions got to do one type of action for free. Two of them got to do another type of action for free. One of them, all their, their units had to get pulled back to cities they controlled. And another one had a bunch of their units that had to go back to their secret base. And this game is very asymmetric. And Adam mentioned a coin game, but if you're not familiar with that terminology, it's basically a type of game that's set up around counterinsurgency where there's one superpower and then there's usually some power that's trying to rise up, but then there's usually a couple other factions that are doing some. So this this followed that scheme, but if you're not familiar with it, it's a pretty interesting, it's a pretty interesting idea. Every player is playing with completely different actions available to them. What they're doing is completely different. What they what they're trying to do to win the game is completely different. And then some of those kind of fringe elements like the end game components are completely different. And so it definitely causes some interesting variety in the game. It also causes though a really, really long teach time. And you know, we saw that today it was awesome. You know, the designer of the game sat down, taught us the game and he taught it, he's, he's got the script worked out. He said he's taught it dozens of times and it still took him 45 minutes, 50 minutes to teach the game. And the actual basic gameplay mechanisms are not that complicated. So, you know, really where the time comes in to teach it is that you have to teach every faction what they can do differently. You know, they're the base game mechanisms were like 10 minutes, 15 minutes, but then he's got to go through and teach every action and how each of the eight different actions are different for each of the different characters. So I think that's one of the downfalls of this type of game. It's not this one specifically. I think any game where you've got complete asymmetry in a game, anytime you're bringing some new into it, you're going to spend a lot of time teaching them the game. Once we once he taught it to us, we barely had to ask any questions. Like we were able to get down, start playing right away. The player boards really explained all the actions. I almost wonder if he didn't even need to teach the, all those actions so much. Like he might have been able to just kind of talk through one of the player boards, and then everyone could have kind of taken it from there. I'll jump in here and say a big similarity in this type of game is, and a popular one is root. Root. Yeah. Every faction is so different. They have different kind of win conditions. Different things they do on their turn and one of the ways to kind of track everything is a, is you can do a victory point tracker and he has a nice board here to at least keep an eye on how well each faction is doing and there's a similar mechanism in root where there's a score tracker or they can play this other mm -hmm. card that gives an alternate victory condition no alternate victory conditions here in this game just that score tracker over there so that simplified things a bit and then two three turns into it you get a little more familiar with what the other factions are going for keeping it to only four factions here is nice i think in root there's up to i don't know how many factions now and then i think in root actions are much more varied as well so 
Steve, thoughts on that? I just wanted to mention that the teach that's on the Board Game Geek page for this game is nearly identical to the one that he gave us in person. So if you want to hear the rules from the developer, it's on there and it's basically the same as what we heard. Clearly, you won't have the advantage of being able to ask a few follow-up questions, but it's very thorough. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm glad you brought up Root, Adam, related to this. I know Root's a really popular game. A lot of people really love it. And I had that game a couple years ago, and ultimately I, I learned it. I thought it was really interesting, but I gave it away because the idea of being able to sit down with the same four people frequently enough to explore that game and enjoy it just didn't seem realistic to me. You know, at the time I had a group of like seven rotating people that would come in and out and I was like, there's no way that I'm going to get the same four people to sit down, learn the game and then come back the next week and play on the same level. And I think this has some of the same risks and challenges there, but I'm going to say something maybe a little controversial. Having played Root, I think this is a more interesting game. I think the asymmetry, what's different about it and the actions you're taking actually do some things in a more fun way um, where to me, Root got a little tired uh, you know, from the little plays I did with it. I still got the same interesting back and forth and negotiation and all of that stuff that comes with a coin game. This one to me just felt like, to be honest, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, just more interesting that the asymmetric decisions were more fun. I know there's some diehard Root fans and a Root tournament scene and Root and Cole Worley and this and that. I agree, Tim. I like this game a lot better than Root. For whatever reason, it struck the right notes with me, and I enjoyed it much more than Root. Which now, is... there's a hot take for you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, one thing I wanted to go back to that's interesting that you guys mentioned, that the the actions that are available to players are different and unique but they all fall within some similar categories so for example every every faction has a move action but it means something different to each faction every faction has a recruit action but it means something different to every faction so for example if you're playing the robotech expeditionary force then that means fixing up some of your broken battle pods and putting them back into circulation again. If you are the Robotech Defense Force, it means moving your troops around the map. If you are a member of the Anti-Unification League, it means recruiting new folks to be insurgents against the Robotech Defense Force. The other thing that was interesting about that was that there's two kinds of actions in the game. There's standard actions and there's special actions, and you're limited in there by whether or not you played a card associated with your faction. If you played a card associated with your faction, you will only get to take a standard action. If you play a card associated with another faction, you get to take two actions, two standard and or special actions. And different actions were special or standard for different players, different factions, depending on the faction. So a move action might have been standard for one player, but special for another, and that was really tailored around what was beneficial for that particular faction and what they were trying to accomplish. And I thought that was really interesting. All right, well, let's let's talk about the production theme. And I just want to start with one thing. You know, we talked a little bit about Robotech as a theme. I think this theme is going to be really exciting, obviously, to somebody who's a fan of Robotech and that IP. And I think it's generally going to be not that interesting to somebody who just isn't into anime or isn't into that era of anime and generally for me i would say i agree with that like i'm just i'm not interested in anime at all two decades of hypersexualization of young girls in anime films and just like the direction it's it's gone it's just not that 
and it's always so bizarre and it's always so like off kilter and so much weird stuff happening. So just my opinion is like, I don't really have that much interest in an anime look and feel and theme. And I did appreciate, I think Robotech was a little bit ahead of that. I think it actually tells a, you know, decent, like mature story that's entertaining and, and, you know, has some, some really cool story elements to it. So it was kind of fun for me to come back to this thing where I really wasn't interested in playing it because of that kind of aversion to anime. And, and it, it worked, you know, like it, it actually had an interesting story that the game told and, you know, it didn't have a lot of those kind of negative elements for me that come with anime. So that was my take on just the theme in general. I, you know, if you don't like anime, it's probably not going to change your mind, but I do think it's a little bit you know, different than modern anime, at least. So are Tim, are you saying that the anime theme here was a turnoff for you or? Are you... I'm saying generally it is, but after playing it, I, 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 I like the game more than I thought it would because of that. I gotcha. Like I, I, but I also think that you know if you're not really not into anime, if you don't like that series, that type of animation, you know that kind of that cell animation from that that style, it's going to have that look and feel to it. So just keep that in mind. You know, it's it's not going to look like Root because it you know it doesn't have that you know kind of modern artistic sensibility to it. It's got an anime sensibility to it. So I think it's going to be a turnoff for some people. Yeah, I can't speak to whether or not it would be a turnoff to someone who is not a fan of the series. And I guess, you know, you're, what you're saying, you know, may be true because you're, you are not a particularly big fan of the series or anime. But what I can say... Anime in general, yeah. yeah not, it wasn't the series specifically. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But what I can say is if you are a fan of the series then that is a huge benefit for this game because all of those characters that you're seeing, I mean, they're all people you know from the show. You're going to know all of them. You're going to know their backstories. And that is a huge boost to this game in terms of its interest, I think. So Chris, I think it was last episode, but recent episode, he asked me about Dragon Prince Battle Charge and if Mm -hmm. people who hadn't seen the show would be interested in the game. And I can't say that they would be. Here, I knew nothing about the show Robotech and I enjoy this game very much. I, you know, I knew nothing about the IP. I did know Voltron. Voltron is awesome. <laughs> but having known nothing about the show, I thoroughly enjoyed the gameplay. The gameplay stood by itself without any kind of IP attached, I think, to be an enjoyable game. That's my thoughts on it. Yeah, I 100% agree on that. I, I, and maybe that's why it still won me over, even though I went in kind of not excited about it. And, and, okay. and it's just like, you know, the, the visuals of this game are very much set in that world. Like the whole board is just different, you know, cells from the anime series and every card has that art clearly printed on it. And so it's, it's going to be right in your face. You're going to be experiencing that art style. So some people might be turned off by that, but I do think the gameplay stood out above just that, that theme, even if it's not for you. That, that was my very poor uh, attempt at making a point. There, but that's that's what I was trying to get to. Steve, what's your take on it? Not remembering the show, because I did watch it a long time ago. I could tell I was missing out on backstory that somebody who knew would have enjoyed in the game. And there were certain components, especially like some of the names. If you were making this game not based on a pre-existing IP, you could probably have come up with easier to pronounce names. <laughs> but that being said... Clearly, if you are a Robotech fan, that IP is going to be a benefit to you. And I, I, other than some of the naming stuff, it really it had had no negative impact on the game. And I think that the way that they tied in the asymmetric powers to the specific factions that they were applied to was intentional and um, part of the fun of the game. 
Yeah, and I want to bring up the the naming, go back to that for just a second, because I actually do think there's a little bit of a, they, they did a little too much fan service here. And I, I understand that this game is made for Robotech fans, but like thinking about the four rounds of the game and what was the last round of the game called? Something about Christmas, remember? It was the name of an episode. Yeah, Season's Greetings. Yeah, Happy Holidays, Season's Greetings. Yeah. Season's Greetings. Yeah, and so basically the four rounds of the game, they had a little name printed on them. And so I think it was supposed to be the name of a episode of the show to kind of represent something that would have happened with that faction that started that. It didn't make any sense at all to us at all. And Adam asked about it. And so he, the, you know, the designer kind of explained it to us. So I'm sure that that type of thing is like a fan of the show. It's like, oh, I remember that episode. Yeah, this makes perfect sense to us. And if, you know, to our listeners who are most likely not going to be heavy Robotech fans, if they want to check this out, it's doing a little bit of a disservice to them, I think. I don't know, Tim. I, I sort of disagree here. I feel like those are kind of, kind of a nice little Easter egg almost. Like you see this name, Seasons Greetings. What the heck does that mean? Oh, maybe it has something to do with the show. I'll go, maybe I'll go check it out on the internet. And then you find out, oh, how cute. That's the name of an episode. Well, that's kind of clever. And then you see what this episode's about. Oh my gosh, this is the episode where the faction with that symbol totally took control and won the whole thing. So I think there are nice little touches. And I, I look at them more as cute little Easter eggs and nice little decorations. Well, one second though, if I, if we'd been playing this without the designer and then that was up there, you, you think you would have put the effort into looking up or would you just been like, that doesn't make any sense. That's confusing. I would have been like, I would be like, Hmm, what, what could this possibly mean? And I think I would have gone down the rabbit hole and figured it out. And I would have come back and said, Tim, you know what season's greetings is? It's an episode where this faction finished off this arc and won the whole thing. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. Chris, how much does this thematically tie in? To the show as the resident expert on Robotech, <laughs> how much does the show or this is the game tie in at the factions and the players and the cards? A tremendous amount. I mean, it is based on there. Are, there are cards based on specific episodes. There are cards based on specific things that happened. There are quotes from the characters on the cards. So I, I get what Tim is saying about fan service, and I can completely understand that perspective. That said, that's going to be a fault or in a characteristic at least, of pretty much anything based on an IP. Recently we played, or well, I guess it wasn't that recently, but a while back we played Red Rising, and I read the books, but I could also see how someone who hadn't read the books, none of, none of the characters would make any sense to them. You know, matching this character with that character, why is that important? I don't know, I didn't read the books. Or The Expanse, you know, that you've got certain characters that can do certain things and it's got a little picture of a character which means nothing to me because I don't watch the show or any you know, anything like that and I think there's different degrees like I think you can take a game and genericize it enough that that's not going to be the case but then you're going to lose fan interest and so in the end I thought this game walked a pretty fine line had a pretty nice balance between the stuff that you could really dig into as a fan versus making it generic enough or generalized enough that you could appreciate it as a, not a fan of the series as well. Well, all I'm saying is that Season's Greetings pushed it just slightly over that line. I hear you. But otherwise, it was it was all right. Yeah, no, I, I, I get I want to come point. back. I want to say this almost works in reverse. I think you guys have the whole paradigm wrong. I think this game made me want to go back and explore the TV show. I think that's how I'm looking at it. Um, so I'm seeing it a little bit of reverse, I think, from the way you guys are looking at well, it. Well, I like that perspective. <laughs> well, 
I, I would concur with that aspect of it, but again, it's those specific phrases weren't at all what made me think, oh, I should go watch the show. Yeah, and then like the cards, you know, the event cards where they had a, I think they were all episode names or something as well, but they had art to represent it and they had flavor text in the bottom. And so those, oh, okay, I can understand what that name of that card means. That specific element on the player board, again, just super minor, who cares? It just stood out to me as being just a little bit too much focus for one fan base and maybe that's who they're presenting this to i don't think our listeners are, are who they're trying to sell it to then so minor thing okay let's talk about the other components here first of all the user experience and the graphic design on all of these components is really really good like really good the point tracking board the end round board the player boards the board itself everything is clear super easy to understand did you guys have any challenges there or did you did you agree with me on that i think everything was smooth very smooth. Yeah, I mean, I, w- I would even say, like, I asked the designer, like, who who put this together? Because I was impressed by how easy they made it to process all the information that was going on and track all the information that was going on in a way that I think a lot of even modern, popular, modern Euro game designers don't don't understand to do. Like, they don't know how to present some information in a simple, easy to clear to read and to track. I was just really impressed by that. So I wanted to call that out. I, I just want to agree with what you said, Tim. I thought the player mats... They really, they told the whole story. I mean, they told you everything that you needed to know almost to the point where you don't have to learn. You don't have to have a teach to explain to you what each faction does. Right. And the same thing with the end of round, because the end of round is fairly complex in this game. But the, the mat that lays it out is so clear that there's really no ambiguity. And I thought that was excellent. Yeah. As to the graphic design, I like that they did a lot of things that made it graphically striking in in ways that I wouldn't have thought of. So, for example, the map is, the, or the board is more or less a map of the United States, with you know certain cities on it and you know, deserts and various other things. But it's not laid out at all like a map. It's laid out as a stylized series of zones that looks really cool and generally reflects location, but it's laid out in this kind of odd and interesting way that I thought was really visually interesting. And I'm curious, what do you guys think about that? I thought the map was fantastic. I mentioned it during the play. I love how the cities are all organized as circles. The So that's an easy visual cue. That's one of the scoring criteria. One of the in-game criteria is having control of these cities. I like that the there's these little citizens you're trying to influence to join the rebellion or to not join the rebellion. They have a green zone for like where they're safe, the leftmost side of this little tracks on some of the cities. And over on the right, it's a red zone for when they go and join the rebellion or the bad guys. So the map was just, it was cool. I thought it was really cool. It was different. Uh, something I haven't seen. Something else I wanted to touch on, the in-game mat too, I want to mention. something A game like Comet can really use something like this, where it has all these steps you're taking at the end of the round to clean stuff up. And you have to like flip over to the rule book. Okay, step one, do this. Step two, do this. Where mm-hmm. it's such a nice yeah. layout. It just is right there in front of you. Oh, I do this now. I do this now. Perfect. Done. 
reset it. Yeah, and there's a lot that happens in the end round, and we never had to look at the rule book exactly. for it. It was all clearly yeah. spelled out with some with some really simple iconography and a, and a track that you just move through the mm-hmm. round. Things awesome. It was an awesome aid. I wouldn't mind talking about the cards themselves. Any action you take that isn't printed on your player board is on the event cards. In a lot of games where your actions are coming off of cards like this, they're either hard to read, they don't give enough of the footprint to the text, or the card is just distracting from what you're trying to figure out what to do. And I didn't have any of those feelings with these cards. The text was very easy to read, but aside from that, the what you were supposed to do, the actions, I felt were very well written and straightforward. Overall, just one of the better experiences for me personally in terms of reading a card that you might not be that familiar with and having to make some relatively quick decisions about do I want to trade for this card? Should I? Which of these two cards should I play right now? I just, I really liked how the uh, the cards were laid out. You make such a good point, Steve. And I want to compare this to Fractal Beyond the Void, which we just looked at. The cards are tiny and there's icons. You're like going back and forth. Like, what exactly <laughs> does this mean? I'm not sure. I, I, let me go check the rule book. Okay, five minutes later, I think I know what this means. And maybe I got it right. So I'm a th- I guess we'll play it now. Oh, wait. Oh, maybe I want to do this card. All right. The same, the whole entire same process. You're wasting all this time. The cards are fantastic here. There's no ambiguities. You play the card and it's straightforward. Yeah, one little thing that they did here that I think helped was because there was a lot of text. You know, a lot of the cards had a lot of rules on them or what you were doing. And to save space, sometimes they used a little icon or a visual indicator of what you were interacting with, but it was never unclear. It was always like a little picture of the you know, player marker, or as a a picture of one of the tokens that was on the board. So it was always referencing a physical component that you had in front of you. You knew exactly what it meant to do, but it didn't have to spell it out and say, you have to move X token off the board. It was always just that little icon. And and so I think in a lot of cases, it saved a smaller font and it allowed for that to be just super clear. Yeah. One more place again, where, you know, I don't know, we got some like big companies making games right now that just could take some real tips off of the user experience from this game. We have also talked about that specific problem before where actions that you take, the iconography on those actions doesn't match the actual uh, components of the game itself. That is partially true in this situation, right? If it would tell you to move an RDF token, Mm -hmm. it would have the symbol for RDF, but the RDF tokens aren't the symbol of rdf right there because there are multiple types of tokens but i still thought it was extremely straightforward yeah you're right and that is that is the one place that confused me at one point but it was very clear once somebody explained to me what it intended i just mis misunderstood mm-hmm. it but you're right that's the one time when it was talking about a generic token of any kind and not a specific token then it just used the, the faction symbol. the faction symbol but, and not the yeah. actual type of unit yeah exactly but that made that made pretty good sense once somebody explained it to me now this game is all cardboard it's cardboard and cards so it's not there's nothing really spectacular about the production here and of course we haven't played with the physical version we played on tabletop simulator so we don't know what the ultimately what the quality of the cards are going to be or how thick the cardboard's going to be it, it could be a big 
have a big impact on the how we would feel about the components. Because if this was all paper stock layer boards and if the cards were cheap, then you know that's not going to be something I'd write home about. As is, it's not going to be anything that really stands out to you. You know, there's no wooden components, there's no minis. As far as I could tell, it was all cardboard sets. That said, the MSRP, or at least the pre-order price for this game, is only $35. So you're, you're getting a lot of game in this little box, beautiful art on it, really nice-looking production, and so the quality of the components are going to suffer a little bit for that price point. I would agree, and I'm usually the first person to complain about the lack of minis, but in reality here, there's not that much call for them. There are four, I think, standees that you know are completely functional, and truth be told, we're looking at art from a television show, and if you're a fan of the television show, you're used to seeing these characters in 2D in a certain way. So in a sense, you know the standees kind of make sense. So I don't know that would have added much, but it would have made the price a lot higher. Yeah, and when I first saw the game laid out on the board, if you look at a picture of it, it, it looks kind of messy because you're looking at this map with all kinds of graphics and animation on it, and then there's a whole bunch of tokens on it. But in reality, if they'd replaced those tokens with minis, I think it would have made it harder to use. And as it was, it was really easy and clear to see whose faction was where on what place on the board, what kind of unit it was. Everything was super clear as you learn the game and we're starting to play it. And that's important because you gotta look and see who's in control of a region all the time. And you have to look at units from two different factions to determine that. So it's really important to be able to do that at a glance and be able to change that easily. You know what I wouldn't mind is seeing a little bit more differentiation in the who controls the territory. You, They're the same symbol, but one just has a slash through it. And maybe if that was mm -hmm. highlighted a little bit more, I don't know if they could change the color or something because it's, they're both red. They both have a slash or one has a slash through one. That's the only difference is a slash. So if something that was, that's kind of my one complaint about the control tokens. I assume though, and Chris, you can correct me, but it, it, aren't those just the two icons of the actual factions in the show? Like one is the robot, you know, league, the, the main police force. And then the other one is the opposing force. Is that their actual faction icon? The Robotech defense force icon is the same one from the show. But the Anti-Unification League, which is sort of the counter force, I'm not sure if they had an actual logo or not, but I get but I get the point. Okay. I mean, it's definitely, it, it created a little yeah. bit of ambiguity. Not that much, but some. I don't know whether it's related to the original show or not, but I did like that it made it really clear that you weren't just another faction. You were the anti-faction to the RDF. I didn't mind that symbology. I did also have a little bit of a hard time seeing the the territory control tokens but if you look at the turn order tokens even though it uses the same icon they gave it a different color border just to make it just so it's really clear that there's two different tiles uh -huh. there and i think that might have helped a little bit on the territory control tokens something to make a pop or yeah differentiate a little bit would help i think let's move into standout moments of the game chris why don't you start it's one that I alluded to earlier, and that was in the second game. I'll say that in the first game, Steve won handily. And then in the second game, I played the faction he did, and I tried to pull a similar kind of trick. And you know, Adam and I had been walking in lockstep the entire time. And then I got to the point where I had accomplished pretty much everything in my win conditions, and I was I thought I was sitting pretty. I thought I had set it up so that basically everybody was going to have to, you know, you know, fall in line. And sure enough, everybody uh, teamed up and talked through it and came up with solutions to, to knock me down off of first place. And it was a sad and disappointing moment. But it was a really 
I think, a really indicative moment of the game because the defining factor of the game in a lot of ways is how the players interact with each other and how that impacts where you stand in the game at any given time. Yeah, kind of falling on top of that. My my moment that stood out was there was a moment, I think it was in the third round of the second game, where Steve was kind of my partner in that game. You know, So I wanted him to have control of stuff, but he was starting to get close to his end goal, which was to have basically make the citizens happy in five five regions or something like that. He was pushing towards it and he had so much control in this one region and he had four happy guys in that region. I was like, there's no way Steve's going to lose this game. And somehow um, Adam gets in there, drops a crap load of forces and then just takes all that happiness away. There's no, then it's almost like how Steve, Steve could never even possibly, he's got no chance again here. For the card I had in my hand uh, and I was like, holy cow, I could make, uh, and I was going to play after Steve that round, I could make five tokens, I think it was five tokens from other regions go up to that specific area, which would have given him the condition that he needed to win or at least stop Adam, almost completely stop Adam from doing it. So I made a deal with Steve and you know he was gonna play some card and I was gonna do that for him and totally set him up for the next round, the beginning of the next round. But Adam's gonna go first the next round and we look up at what Adam's special card is that he's gonna get at the end of this current round. There's a few, it's something that happens in the end of the round, but that round said you go in and you destroy all of everybody else's forces in that one region that I was going to be able to move those tokens to. So because of the specific timing of the way these cards came up, it completely changed my plan, completely shifted everything around. And it was pretty neat to see because there are some really powerful effects that come up, especially towards the end of the game. And the, the deck is stacked where half the cards are shuffled for the first two rounds and then half the cards are shuffled for the, for the next two rounds. And those cards that start to come up at the end of the game just feel so great game-breaking but there is, they're all, it's all over the place. There's swing. You've got to get them at the right time. You've got to make sure that you got things lined up. So it just creates some really fun opportunities. But you definitely, no matter how strong they are, you're not guaranteed. There's ways to counter them. I think that's a, that's a, it's a pretty clever mechanism. So we never, we never had anybody that was just like, hi, I played this card and I just won the game from it. It was, it was always a constant push back and forth. I, I think like the, the moment or series of moments that stood out to me. Aside from uh, winning the first game, but since nobody was really paying attention to the score tracker, I get that's only a half <laughs> no, win. You deserve it. You did. You earned it. In the second game, uh, I needed five happy citizens to win the game. And I got up to seven, and I felt pretty good about it, but I miscalculated how easy it was for Adam's faction. to. I forgot he could move units anywhere on the board and it's cheap, and he had plenty of money. So he was able to overpower my forces there. I should have planned better for that, but I didn't, and he kicked my butt. He killed all of my citizens in that territory. Well, actually recruited them for the other side, so it was even worse. That almost gave him the, the win condition right there. That's basically the prelude to his win, was taking those four citizens away from me. I thought, you know, I'm just... I'm done at this point. Like there's, I have no chance of catching back up. And then the next round, I felt I pretty easily could have met my win condition again, not meaning somebody might not try to take it away from me. But then Adam plays a stupid card that says, I can't move the entire round. Which I had gotten from Chris, I believe. Chris had traded. I couldn't use my move actions. I couldn't use the move actions off the other player's cards, which meant I couldn't, move myself into a position to to take the actions that I needed to make the winning move. So that was basically a dud round for me. 
the next round where Adam did win because he got he went first and his particular faction wins immediately if it meets the win condition. So we didn't get a chance to go to the end game um, resolution. I felt that I would have at least had a competitive chance that round again to meet my win condition. So after having my win condition cut in half, being able to come back in each subsequent round and have an actual shot at meeting your win condition again, I thought that that was really fun. And that card that Steve mentioned was part of my failed master plan. That still didn't win the game. <laughs> yeah, there was some highs and lows for me this game. Actually, mostly all just all highs, really. That first game we played was fantastic. Uh, Steve slaughtered us, and I had probably had a chance to stop him, except I wasn't watching the score tracker. And as soon as I finished my turn with the opportunity to stop Steve, Chris goes, Adam, you better watch out. Steve might win this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, duh. I, why didn't you tell me that like 30 seconds ago when I still had a chance to to do something about it? Thanks, Chris. Um, so that that was a great moment in that game. This whole The whole second half of that second game, was great. Steve had the win condition early and then Chris was creeping up there. It took some effort and some scheming by Tim and I to bring those guys down. I thought I had it in the fourth round. I thought I was going to win it easy. Or I guess the third round, I should say. And then Chris plays this card that locks up everybody's leader and kind of tied everybody's hands. So that fourth round, I was just trying to hold on and Tim and I were working to make sure nobody could win. And then I, I, Tried to call it out. Hey, the guys, look at this card. It's going to help me win. Tim was spouting it out to everybody, too. Adam's going to win. Adam's going to win. But nobody did anything, and I won. So that was great. Just the ability to hold on, kind of negotiate with everybody during the whole course of the game. It was fantastic. It's absolutely what I look for in in board games. The interaction with the guys at the table. Fantastic. What was funny about your win in the second game and both the, you know, both the big moves that you made when you took everything from Steve and when you won was because you had a ton of money. And um, even though money didn't feel that tight or that impactful when you had it, you could do a ton because a lot of the actions you can take, you could just repeat them over and over again for one mm -hmm. credit each in most cases. And so if you were able to build up enough money from having more control in previous rounds or taking some of those little those income areas that could really make a difference on your future rounds. And th that was a really, I think something I didn't really understand or really learn until, you know, halfway through that second game where I was completely broke. I couldn't do anything. I had like three bucks going into the third round and Adam had like 17 and he was able to just do everything he needed to. So it's another, another element that you got to watch for. And that's a realization I had too. I don't know, somewhere in the second game, I said, Hey man, these zones are really good. I feel like I said it out loud. I don't know if you guys heard me. I was like, I feel like we're not, paying enough attention to these zones that give you three credits if you have control of them during that in-game phase, that end-of-round phase. I paid attention to myself and took took those those little zones a few times and got myself plenty of money to give myself options for the future rounds. Yeah, I think you did say that, and I think you proved that you were right. <laughs> it worked out. It's, this game was clicking for me and working on all cylinders, so I enjoyed yeah. it very much. All right, well, let's move on to our final question. And would you request to play this game again? Chris, you brought this to the table. You told me before, you texted before we started playing and said, I'm not so sure about this game. I got some concerns. So how did you feel after actually playing the games tonight? I was blown away compared to my expectations, honestly. When I read the rules and I got a little bit of the background of the game, I, I had some skepticism, primarily because... There's a couple mechanisms in this game that don't sort of come naturally to me as my, my favorite pieces. And they're the ones that we talked about a lot. One of them is 
the sort of semi-co-op, semi-competitive nature of the game. And the other is the negotiation factor. I think those are both things that will either lead you to really love or really have issues with this game. And so I went into it feeling like, you know, I'm not sure if this is exactly my cup of tea. But once we got going, I mean, our group, we love to have interaction. We love a lot of table talk. And this was about as, you know, robust table talk as you could ever hope for. And it was really impactful. So I think that it ended up coming off way better than I thought it was going to. And I was really impressed by that. So short answer is yes, I would choose to play this one again. I would ask for this game again. It, because of the fact that those are not my favorite mechanisms, I don't think I'd ever say it's going to be my favorite game, but it is definitely one that I would love to play again with you guys in particular. Now, the one caveat that I want to give to all of this is that this game is intended for four players, and that was intentional. It is not intended to be a one, two, three, four player. You know, it's a four player game. Even three players the designer said, is not really optimal. You have a bot that's playing one of the characters and that's not exactly what they had intended and that's not the optimal way of doing it. So my concern is that even if I really love this game, basically, unless I'm playing it with the four of you or excuse me, the three of you, when would I ever get it on the table? So I think that's a real consideration. Now, having said all of that, the designer said that they're working on additional bots for the other factions to the point where you could actually get it down to a solo game. So that might help a lot with that. But in the end, I think that that is something that someone who's considering buying this game ought to take into consideration that it's really going to be a three or four player game. And that might be limiting for some folks. If that's not a limitation for you or not one that bothers you, and you don't mind that kind of wheeling and dealing and negotiating, I think there's a lot to love in this game. I think it's a lot of fun. All right, Steve, what about you? I would request to play it, but I would not request to sit through the rules explanation. <laughs> so again, I would request it to play it with this group or with somebody who took the time to learn the rules before we started playing. But uh, it just takes a long time to go through the rules. Yeah. All right. What about you? Adam? Yes, I would request to play this game. I feel like for our group, we don't play too many games like this. It gave me kind of a feel of Pax Pamir second edition a little bit but even the interaction and that negotiation piece i think was a little it was upped a few levels from pax Mirror, which doesn't necessarily include a lot of negotiation in the game you, you do have those loose alliances and shifting this and shifting that and say hey if you do this will you do that and you can take guys hostages and whatever but here it was it was just a nice piece and it's not something that our group does too much and i absolutely love this kind of game Chris brings up a great point about you're going to need four players to play this game, and that might be hard to find. But yeah, I love this game. I would absolutely request to play it again. You guys all said you would request to play it. Are any of you thinking about actually pre-ordering it? I think for 35 bucks, the risk, the financial commitment is so low that I'm, I'm definitely looking at pre-ordering this one. I'm with Adam on that one. It's, it actually surprises me because, I, you know, because of the fact that it's a three to four player game. I wonder whether I would ever get it on the table, but in reality, I mean, at that price point, why not have it? Because if I had a hard copy of this game, I would love to play with you guys again the next time we're together. Be terrific. Be fun. Yeah, right on. Okay. This game is available at pre-order right now. They're talking about shipping it sometime in quarter two, 2022 at this point. So if it sounded interesting to you, you can go 
go on their website, pre-order it for 35 bucks, and you'll get it sometime next year, hopefully. So my answer to that question is, I don't think I would request to play it. Now, I actually did enjoy this game a lot more than I expected to. Uh, you know, when Chris, you know, suggested it, when I watched a little bit of rules overview today, looked at the components, and I was like, oh, God, some, this is going to be some dumb IP-based game that's going to be poorly developed and, and designed, and it's just going to be a slog to get through. And God, Chris can't pick games. And then I actually had a really good time playing it, and I, I liked it a lot more than I expected to. Um, it was a lot of fun, and I'm glad we got exposed to it. It was a good, it was a good time with our group. Um, you know, there's some things about this type of game, though, that just don't get me excited, like, you know, the, the negotiation. I'm terrible at it. Everybody, like, I just feel like I, I am never going to get out ahead on these, you know, on these scenarios. I'm always going to be the one that's... I'm just not good at it. And so it, it just makes it always feel like a, a painful, you know, miserable experience for me. Tim, that just means you need more practice. You have to try more. <laughs> practice. Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes you don't have to practice things you don't like doing, too. You can just not do them. That's the great thing about being an adult. It's not like my daughter <laughs> having to go to singing lessons when I keep telling her, you just got to practice, you know. But anyway, um, I had fun playing it. If you guys ever had it, especially a physical version, I'd love to play it. You know, like anything like this, playing on Tabletop Simulator, changing cards, you know, like trading cards and showing them to people and negotiating. That would be so much easier and slicker and more fun in person. So, um, you know, I'd enjoy that experience more. But um, there's something about the, the um, you know, the theme, as I mentioned, the anime style art, even though... I like the game a lot, and this is a probably a better example than most. That just doesn't bring me back in too much. So I, I don't think I would request to play it. I wouldn't pre-order it, but I had a good time with it. I'm excited after the experience we had tonight. I think you guys are going to find some similarities in the experience with Cerebria, which we're going to hopefully be playing next weekend. I'll be interested to see how you, you know, how you think of that as a comparison, because I found a lot of the same joy in that kind of interacting with a teammate and working together and doing something that I don't normally do in a, like a co-op game where you're playing just against the AI. There's something about two versus two real people that you're playing with and working with that is more fun to me than I've experienced in co-op games. So I'm um, looking forward to doing some more two-on-two -two type of experiences like this. It was, it was a really good time. I'll wrap up our conversation on Robotech Reconstruction. We're gonna talk about a couple things that are, have been on our table as well as some future takes right after this. All right, welcome back. So Chris has a theme cocktail for us this week, set in the world of 2013, when Robotech Reconstruction is happening. Yeah, the, the far future of 2013. So Robotech Reconstruction is set on Earth, but the you know, fans of the original series will recall that the SDF-1, which is the space battleship that was featured prominently on the game's box cover, accidentally warp jumped to the outer edges of the solar system and then spent two years fighting its way back home. So for today's drink, we'll be taking inspiration from that journey with an amazing cocktail called the Saturn. This is a page straight out of my favorite playbook, which is mid-20th century tropical cocktails. Now I can already tell what you're thinking. What in the world does mid-century cocktail culture have to do with outer space? Well, you might actually be surprised. In the 1950s, two seemingly unrelated things were happening. First, thousands of soldiers that had fought in the Pacific theater of World War II were settling into a quiet life in post-war America. As a result of that, popular culture latched onto the idealized notion of life in the South Pacific. Now, out of respect for the diverse people and cultures of that region, I feel compelled to note here that the cartoon version of the Pacific Islands 
had little to no bearing on actual life there, but suffice to say that Americans thought of the region as one big tropical resort. That in turn led to the Tiki Bar. Over-the-top restaurants and bars filled with palm trees and bamboo that offered a little bit of easy escapism, complete with a long menu of delicious drinks filled with exotic spices, fruit juices, and often loads of rum. That was cultural phenomenon number one. Second, America was locked in a space race with the Soviet Union, and Americans had gone absolutely space crazy. Space was everywhere. Add to that the country's dream of the newly hardest atom, and you had yourself a golden age of both science and science fiction. So you put these two things together, and you get a really odd combination, a surprisingly deep bench of space-themed tropical cocktails. So the one we'll be talking about today, the Saturn, was invented in 1967 by bartender J. Popo Galsini. So let's launch into the drink. But first, a quick note about the ingredients. I normally try to go with recipes that have easy-to-find components, but today I couldn't help myself from going a little more exotic. There's a couple in here that most folks aren't going to have in their pantries, but I promise you, please give this a try. You'll see these ingredients over and over again in various tropical cocktails, so you can have a great time seeing what other recipes you can make with your newfound stash. So first, the easy ones. You're going to need one half ounce of lemon juice and one and one quarter ounces of gin. Now here's where it gets a little bit trickier. You're also going to need one half ounce of passion fruit syrup, one quarter ounce of falernum. This is a syrup made of lime, baking spices, and vanilla, among other things. Or you can use the more commonly available velvet falernum, which is a liqueur found in many well-stocked liquor stores. And finally, you'll need one quarter ounce of orja. This uh, spelled like orgiat if you see it in the store. It's pronounced orja. And it's a delicious almond syrup that seems to be showing up a lot more in stores, so it's not quite as hard to find as it used to be. And if you can't find this, you could use the regular almond syrup in a pinch. And if you're really desperate, and it actually hurts me to say this, but you could use amaretto. Don't do it if you don't have to, but you could. If you want to be a purist, you blend these ingredients together with one cup of ice. Or if you're lazy like me, you can just shake this with crushed ice and pour the whole thing, ice and all, into a rocks glass. And there you go. You have a couple of Saturns, and you will be seeing rings in no time. Or... If you don't want to be relieved of duty by Captain Glovel, you can try this fun non-alcoholic version. You take out the gin and you replace it with two ounces of soda water. I can't really claim ownership here because all I did was swap out the gin for the soda water. But just for fun, I named this one the Minmay after the show's heroine. I also let my son try one of those and he approved of the drink but not the name. He said I should have named it after Roy Foker, one of the other pilots. But whatever you call it. Enjoy. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Chris. And also thanks for the uh, $70 out of pocket it cost me to buy the ingredients for this drink. So. <laughs> Don't say that out loud. I want people to do it. <laughs> we we, uh, we got to reuse some of those ingredients for future drinks so they're just going to go bad in my fridge. So. Tim, <laughs> just sell one of your scythe commission three well, by the way by the way someone reached out after hearing that episode today and they said how many minis did you get painted you know for that price and i told i was like 11 and they're like you got a deal you should have been paying like 45 to 60 bucks for the quality of paint job that you're you're trying to get done there so wow. we'll see apparently nice. i got a real deal on that all right well let's let's talk about a couple of games on our table this week steve do you have anything for us the only game i've really been playing lately is azul if you're not familiar with azul it's a tile drafting game 
basically. At the beginning of each round, you'll place a number of factory coasters on the play area, depending on the number of players. And then you pull random tiles from a bag uh, and put four tiles on each factory. And uh, as you play the game, you choose a specific color of tile from any factory. And the rest of the tiles that you don't choose go into a pot. Uh, so in addition to drawing from the factory, any player can also draw tiles from the pot. And the, uh, the pot gets interesting because as players continue to draw tiles from the factory, the pot gets bigger and bigger, and you can end up drafting quite a large number of tiles at one time. So basically, after you've drafted all the tiles from the factories, you do your scoring. You can only ever play one color of tile in a scoring row. So as the game progresses, your choices get more and more limited, which makes your risk of having to draw unwanted tiles greater. And the unwanted tiles score against you, and they can also force you into playing colors in rows that uh, are going to interfere with your, your scoring goals. It's pretty dynamic. People uh, that I play with love seeing the tiles and hearing the tiles. It's just a very tactile or sensory uh, oriented game, not so much tactile, but um, yeah, it's pretty easy to teach and uh, I've been having a lot of fun with it. Now, that's a game by Michael Kiesling and Plan B Games. I had a couple questions. This is a game from 2017. Now, Steve, did you play it back then and are you coming back to it? I think I started playing it about 20... 19 no you introduced it to me on my last trip out there and i was 2018 i think so yeah okay. i think i think you'd had it for a few years and how's it holding up are you still enjoying it because this is a game i have and it was one of my first introductions to modern boring games and i loved it but i haven't gone back to it how's it holding up i think it's absolutely great for audiences that are not into heavyweight games the the rules are super easy and um i think it has really high replay value i have um, been playing this a lot lately as well because we have our foreign exchange students staying with us and so i've been trying to introduce her to some hobby games that are easier to get into and we're you know getting deeper and deeper she learned lost winds of arnak this week but azul is still her favorite one uh, i was one of the first ones i introduced her to she loves going back to it and what i'll say about the replayability adam is that when i first got introduced to it i loved it i bought it right away played it a bit, was really enjoying it, but then it started to get stale, especially I was playing a two player and I felt like, oh, this is getting tired. I'm, I'm not enjoying this. But what I've actually found is if I stay at like three or four players, I can come back to this game anytime. And especially with experienced Azul players, it really gets to be this like really tight, like battle back and forth. Everybody knows what the best tiles are to take and what you're, you know, you got to watch everybody else's board and make sure that you're taking the tiles that they were going to use and, and get extra stuff that they're going to get negative points. And it's a real serious push and pull. So I'm actually still really enjoying this game after playing it for about three years and probably, you know, 60 games of it in at this point. Um, so I think it, it has held up for a game of this weight. It's not going to be my, you know, game night, anchor but it is a game that i'm happy to play anytime with a more casual group one of the games i'm actually was was going to mention in the future take segment but i'm just going to touch on it briefly here is that there is a brand new version of azul called azul queen's garden i think is the name of it there's been a couple other iterations of azul but this one actually seems really interesting to me and that not only are you drafting the tiles you've got to place on your board with whatever restrictions they have but you're also going to be drafting the new sections of your board during that game. And so you're going to draft sections and then flip them over and they'll get you 
additional spaces to place on. And just the added level of that seems like it could be really fun. I don't know if I'll pick it up. I don't know if I need two versions of Azul, but it does have me intrigued more than the last couple iterations do. Adam, what do you what do you had on your table lately? Nothing on the table, but again, I'll do a future take here. I'm looking at Dune, colon, a game of conquest and diplomacy. This is, well, the designers are the same. The design, the original Dune game, Bill Eberly, Jack Kittredge, Peter Olatka, Greg Olatka, and Jack Retta. These guys are the same designers that did Cosmic Encounter way back in the 70s. Publisher here is Gale Force 9. They're also the ones that re-released Dune back in 2019, I think it was. And this is allegedly a more streamlined version of that game. It's for two to four players. For Old Dune, you basically needed six players. There was some ambiguity in the rulebook. The re-release still left that ambiguity in there. You know, if you were the progenitor of this game for your group, maybe you got to use the rules that you wanted to use. Otherwise, if there's some guy back in the 80s, you know, who played this in the 80s, he'd be like, no, we're going to play it like this because that's how we always did it. And there's three different dudes that have three different versions of the way they like to play the game. So it was just a mess to try to get old Dune to the table. I hope that they've resolved some of those issues and given just a clear way to play the game because it has some of the most amazing mechanisms and interaction and auction. Some of the things I liked in this Robotech game tonight are expressed really well in that original Dune game. So I'm gonna keep my eye on it. I don't know if I'll back it. I see a price here, a pre-order for like 60 bucks. That seems a little steep. So I'm gonna see what's in there. I'm gonna watch it closely. Maybe it'll be in my collection soon, maybe not. But that's what I'm keen on and, and I'll be watching with interest. Any guys thoughts on that? Yeah, I, actually, I'm I'm interested. I don't have any interest in playing the old Dune game. It sounds like a mess, but if they're if they've modernized it and streamlined it, I think it sounds could be a lot of fun. So I'd, I'd love to try it. Yeah, let's hope. One more thing that's been on my table this week, a game I've been looking forward to for a long time because I backed it way back in like early 2020 on Kickstarter, and that was Glenmore Two Chronicles. And this was also um, it comes with a, an expansion, the Highland Games expansion. So a little bit about Glenmore Two Chronicles. This is a Matthias Kramer game uh, that I think was first designed back in like 2015 or 2016 uh, as just Glenn Moore. And the idea of the basic game here is that you have a rondelle that has about 20 tiles placed around it. And it's like a kind of a little bit of a tile um, drafting thing, but you use kind of the parks mechanism where you've got three little, uh, each, each player has a meeple on the board and whoever's in the, in the back is gonna be able to move forward and take any space they want to on that rondelle, any one of the tiles. Is that like patchwork? Yeah, it's it's very much like patchwork, exactly. Yeah, you, whoever's in the back is gonna go next. So you can jump ahead and grab any tile you want to, but the rub is that, of course, if you jump five tiles up, then the next person that's gonna go could jump just one tile up, and then they're gonna have a chance to go a couple more times before you do. So that seems a little like, well, why would I ever jump forward and take something bigger? Well, there's a really cool offset here and at the end of the game, if you have more tiles than other people, you get negative three points for however many tiles you have more than the people less than you. So you still have to be cautious about just taking a whole bunch of tiles that aren't gonna benefit your strategy particularly well. But it does give you a good option to do that. Now what these tiles do is generally, there's a little bit of a, a tile placement restriction. Everybody starts with uh, two tiles in front of them and one meeple on one of those tiles and these all represent like areas of the Scottish Highlands so they're like you know greenery and rivers and things like that but when you take a new tile you have to place it orthogonally adjacent to one of the existing tiles so that the full edge is, is touching 
and you have to place it connected to where that one of those workers is on your existing tiles, but that can be diagonal or whatever. So when you place it, then some of the tiles have an immediate benefit that you might be one of a resource, it might be points or something like that. And then they also have an activation benefit. And when you place it, you get the activation benefit plus any activation benefits for any tiles connected to it. So as you can imagine, as you're getting new tiles into your little village, if you can place them in the right space, you can activate a whole bunch of stuff and, and do these things. Mostly what the benefits are is one of five commodities, five types of resources. And so you would place the resource that that tile generates onto the tile that generated it, but you can never keep more than three there. So you can't just build up the stockpile. But one of the other really cool mechanisms about it, and some of the tiles actually you have to pay costs for. So if you don't generate the right types of resources, you might not be able to buy a tile, but there's a resource market that exists. So that if you have a resource, you can sell it to the market and you get whatever coins is on the market for it. Or if you need to buy one, you can buy it, but you have to pay the next available space in the market. So the first type of item you buy, you'd, you'd have to pay one coin for it. Let's say it's a stone. But if you wanted to buy another stone and no one else had sold to that market, then you'd have to pay two coins. And then the next person who buys from the market or sells to the market could take the two coins. So it's a really cool push and pull where if you build up a lot of a commodity, and some, nobody else has it, then they might have to be buying it from the market and then you're selling at a premium for it. So there, that's a, another fun element of it. There's a whole lot of stuff going on here, but a couple other things that are clever aside from just the tile placement and the resource management is that the way it scores at the end of the round is there's four things it checks. It checks for how many nobles you've collected, beer, how many people you have on one of your castles in your city, these, these uh, landmark tiles you can get to. And you basically always score based on where you are compared to the lowest person with that score. So if I happen to be going for a heavy beer strategy and I've got five beer in my city and the lowest person only has one, then I'm gonna get a, a differential amount of points depending, you know, based on that difference. So you always have to watch for, if I'm ignoring one strategy completely, I'm giving my opponents a whole bunch of points by not at least trying to catch up to them with the points. So it's a lot of fun in the way that the scoring happens and that happens over four rounds. This game was so much fun. I got a chance, I, I learned it and then I played a, a solo game, which was great too. The solo game comes in the Highland Games expansion. I played it three player the other day and had a really fun time digging into this. This is a fairly simple to teach, but pretty meaty decisions. A lot of cool stuff going on, a really tight marketplace. There's other mechanisms. I just won't go into all of them, but suffice it to say, I really enjoyed my play of it. One of the other cool things about this game, though, is it's called Chronicles because you have this base game, but there's also in the base box, I think, 11 different basically mini expansions. And the mini expansions change the rules in a variety of ways. Sometimes they give you a totally different mini game that gets added in. Sometimes they just add some different tiles and different resource types in there. Um, but it looks like there's a lot of fun ways to change up this game. So I'm excited to dig into this more, play the base game a bit more. And if that starts to feel a little bit tired, then I'm gonna bust out one of these expansions and, and get to dig into it. Um, looks like a blast, but I had a great time with it so far. So that's a game that I hope to be getting a lot more plays of. Um, had a good time with it so far though. Although I have to question, why beer? Why not scotch? You know, maybe it is scotch. I don't have any idea. I think it's beer. They're, they're barrels. They're represented by barrels on the on the page. I can't remember if it's beer. Maybe it is scotch. It's probably scotch. Scotch makes more sense. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, these, uh, these, the Chronicles look cool. They look like they're these little boxes. They look like uh, old Scottish books you yeah. might find in a dusty library. That looks so intriguing. It's so cool the way they do that. Yeah, yeah. All different size tuck boxes depending on how much components, because all of them have components, either whether it's more, you know, and it's all like really nice components, like thick, chunky pieces. Some of them are stickered, but then, you know, the cardboard tiles are only thick tiles. 
the Chronicles might have a bunch more tiles in it. It might have cards. Some of them have like cards you play with. Some of them will have additional meeples or other types of resource components. So each of the Chronicles is completely different and really switches up the game. And apparently you can even add a bunch of these together. So like you could play a game that had a whole bunch of Chronicles mixed together too. And each of the Chronicles in the rule book that explains how to play it, it says how much time it adds to the game. So if the base game's like a 90 minute game and then, or, you know, probably 60 minutes if you're playing three player that know it, then it could add 10 minutes or it could add 15 minutes. If you mix a few of them together, it's going to, you know, kind of stack that up. So you could play a really big, heavy game out of it if you wanted to. Anyway, a lot to explore there and uh, I'm looking forward to, to getting into it further. Looking forward to playing this one in a couple of days. Yeah, hope, hope we do. I'll, I'll be bringing it with me. All right. Well, I think that will wrap us up this week. Uh, if you would like to chat with us or just uh, comment on our thoughts on any of the games we played, you can reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, um, or just BoardGameHotTakes.com. And uh, you can find us in any of those places. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts at BoardGameHotTakes. Until next week, take care, everybody. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Have a good night.